Well, good morning. It's beautiful, a little bit warm Sunday morning here in, uh, in the south. It's good to be with you. We were, a number of us were together as we both celebrated and mourned the passing of Deanne Baker yesterday. Uh, it's always a, uh, it's a sad time, but for the believer, as we noted yesterday, we have a very different perspective than the world when it comes to death, when it comes to passing from this life. And it all comes because of our hope in Jesus Christ, the same Lord and Savior that we worship this morning. It also helps provide a wonderful perspective, a perspective that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us when he says it is better to go to the house of mourning than it is to the house of feasting. And again, as I noted yesterday, that is a weird statement. It is an odd statement. It's certainly not something you would find advertised most places, but it reminds us and it gives us a perspective of this life, that this life is merely preparation for the life to come. Well, as part of that preparation, we're going to jump back into our study of the Gospel of Matthew. You know, it would seem that there is a growing consensus among believers, especially those in the West, that it is somewhat appropriate to disregard rulers and authorities who act contrary to God's law or who are disobedient to God. I think we would all agree that if instructed by rulers or authorities to directly disobey God, then we really must respond like Peter and the apostles who said we must obey God rather than man. But what about the less obvious examples? What about when it's merely uncomfortable? What about when it's inconvenient? What about if it just means I have to change my tradition? What then? Does God provide us with any guidance or principles for how we relate to government, to rulers, to authorities, especially to evil ones or wicked ones or those who do not obey him? How we are to act in these type of situations in his word? I believe the answer is yes, he does. Not only is there the Old Testament pattern based upon the sovereignty of God and his decree concerning the establishment and the removal of kings and authorities, but there's also New Testament instruction. This morning, we'll witness together Jesus' teaching concerning authorities when the religious leaders try to once again entrap him. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. This morning we resume our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We, we left off in the middle of chapter 22 several weeks ago. I know I stopped in the middle of chapter, that's just the kind of guy I am. You may remember in chapter 21 of Matthew, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He entered it at the start of the Passover week. And it was not just any Passover week, because this would be the Passover week that would culminate in the crucifixion of the Passover lamb. But nobody else knew that yet. Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders had reached a fever pitch. After creating a disturbance and interrupting the money changers in the temple and drawing further ire from the religious leaders, Jesus angered them even further by horror of horrors, healing the blind and healing the lame and doing other wonderful things. I mean, how dare he, right? How dare he help people? How dare he lift people from their situations and heal and to roll back, at least in a temporary way, the effects of the curse with his very presence? 
Well, in the ensuing confrontations, Jesus engaged the religious leaders through parables. Parables that clearly identified their lack of belief and the judgment of God that was coming upon them. As you can imagine, that didn't go over very well with them. So they began plotting, and that's where we left them. And that's where we'll pick up again this morning. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew 22, you can read along with me as I read verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. They brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar's the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Pray with me if you would, and we'll dive into our study this morning. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to once again open your word together, to come together, to to sing these songs that we've sung this morning that praise your name, that lift you high, that acknowledge and recognize your holiness. Father, you are holy. You are a part from us. And yet at the same time, you have created a way to you, a way that sinners can approach you through your son, Jesus Christ, our mediator and savior. Father, we rejoice in that truth this morning. We rejoice in the proclamation of that. Father, as we study the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, would we be convicted? Would, we, would our love be kindled even further for you and for the work of Christ on the cross and his burial and his resurrection? That through our love for you, we would delight in doing your will. Help us to understand these things this morning. Help us to do the hard things at least hard in our sinful flesh, as we seek to obey you and to love you. In your name, amen. Well, the scene opens with the religious leaders, again, gathered together, plotting and devising a plan to trap Jesus. We just read that. And what is the core of their plot? It's taxes. I mean, who likes paying taxes? It's a good place to go if you want to elicit an emotional response from people, right? I've been trying to teach my children about taxes. So when they come home with something tasty, I demand a tax of it. They don't seem to enjoy paying taxes any more than you do. But for the Jews, it was something else. It was more than just the loss of hard-earned income. For the Jewish person in first century Israel... Taxes are a reminder of oppression. Where Israel had originally learned through the Exodus and the return from Babylon to entrust themselves to the Lord for deliverance, for restoration, and for freedom from oppression, 
their more recent history was filled with violent insurrection against authorities. The exact opposite. The bloody Maccabean revolts had instilled in the Jewish population an unrest toward foreign rulers and oppressors. On their part, the Romans had introduced a harsher than normal taxation because of the trouble that this region created. The Jews were a troublesome people to rule over. And so the extra effort and resources required meant they were going to charge them more to administer it. And despite all of this, the Romans had been somewhat gracious and given certain allowances. One of them was allowing Jewish, or at least a semblance of Jewish rule, as well as the continuation and the allowance of Jewish religious practices and a semblance of Jewish law and order where they could try in their own courts many crimes. In fact, they could administer everything short of the death penalty. But in all of this, it was subject to Roman oversight. Rome was the real ruler. And taxes were a constant reminder of this. So there was this continual unrest. It was fed and it was stoked by the zealots. You may recall one of Jesus' 12 apostles was even a former zealot. Simon, not Simon Peter, the other Simon. And the zealots, they would wage a war. They, they've been waging this war of attrition against the Romans for quite some time, sabotaging them wherever they could and occasionally resulting in even the murder or small armed conflicts. The zealots, in fact, became the primary drivers in the insurrections that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, a few decades after Jesus' ascension. But even those who were not associated with the zealots could not help but be reminded that the Romans were oppressors and invaders. So it was that many, if not most, Israelites and Jews of that day longed for the removal of the Roman yoke from their neck. And Roman taxation was one of the most painful reminders that they were under Rome's foot. The Pharisees, trying to be cunning, sent along some of their followers to question Jesus. And along with them, some of the Herodians. And we don't really know much about the Herodians. A lot of people have tried to guess at exactly who the Herodians are. About what we can agree on is they belonged in some way, probably servants of the court of Herod, the government of Herod, which would have meant that Herod, who received his authority from Rome, it would have meant that they had a certain affiliation, a certain loyalty to Rome. Now, at first, this is a rather odd couple to have the Jewish religious leaders and Roman loyalists together, but as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. By sending the Herodians, the religious leaders thought they had set the perfect trap. The people who despise Rome would want Jesus to answer a question about Roman taxation by saying, of course you shouldn't have to be paying this. On the other hand, those with allegiance to Rome, loyalty to Rome, would see such an answer as treason and report Jesus to the Jewish authorities. Either way, it seemed like the perfect setup. Jesus will either be hated by the people if he says you should pay the taxes, or Rome will seek to put him to death for treason. It was a win-win scenario, or so these Jewish religious leaders thought. These leaders who hated Jesus with a passion. So the trap is set in verse 17 with a question, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? 
Now, this may sound like a legal question, but whenever a Jewish religious leader asks, is it lawful, it's actually a theological question. Is it right before God that we pay this poll tax to these invaders, these oppressors, these ungodly barbarians? With the trap set, how does verse 18 open? But, there it is, the plot twist. The most cleverly devised schemes of man are a laughing matter for God. How does the psalmist put it in Psalm 2? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, in light of all of this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And so Jesus asks, why are you testing me? The term testing is very purposeful. Matthew's used it four other times previously in the Gospel of Matthew. The very first you may remember from Matthew 4, where someone else came to test Jesus in the wilderness, Satan. In fact, he's even called in Matthew 4, verse 3, the tester or the tempter, the very same word. Matthew used it again in chapter 16 and 19 to describe the religious leaders as they become more hostile. It's used very purposely to show us the source and the origination of this hostility and this animosity. This is not simple human antagonism. What is at the root of this, what is behind these emissaries of the religious leaders, is demonic, satanic opposition. The spiritual forces of wickedness are mounting their assault on the Son of God. They are in their death throes. They know that if they don't find a way to stop Jesus soon, then their fate promised from long ago is sealed. But their spiritual darkness blinds them from seeing that they're simply paving the way to the cross and the fulfillment of what has been planned before the foundation of the world. Jesus calls these followers of the Pharisees hypocrites, a derogatory term referring to those who put on a face pretending to be one thing while secretly hiding their true intentions or being something else, acting, speaking, behaving contrary to your true intentions or your true feelings. It's what most Southerners do when you ask how they're doing, or half the time when they say, bless your heart. Here they're trying to butter Jesus up. Notice, back in verse 16, they they said some very true things about him. These hypocrites say he's truthful, and they're spot on with that. They say he teaches the way of God in truth, that he does not defer to anyone. That is, he's not afraid of persons. He doesn't operate out of a fear of man. He speaks the truth without regard for consequences or out of a fear of falling out of favor. And those things are all true. In fact, these are things that James, having learned this lesson, exhorts the churches to do in his book, to preach and teach the truth, to not show favoritism or partiality, especially to the rich and powerful, but to preach and practice the truth of the gospel for all to hear and see. Not to change the message for religious zealots, nor for the rich and powerful who want to have their ears tickled. You see, the religious leaders and their disciples don't actually believe, or at least they don't have any true feelings that accompany these words, even though they're stating absolute truth. 
By Jesus, by saying Jesus does not defer to others or show partiality, they're subtly hoping to goad him into making an anti-Roman or anti-Jewish statement. They'll settle for either one at this point. But Jesus perceives their inward disposition. There's an emphasis here on the supernatural awareness of Jesus. Not only in their hypocrisy, which may have been a little more obvious, but on the extent of the evil within them. The use of the term malice or evil, depending upon the version you have there in verse 18, ties these Israelites to a previous generation that tested God. See, the description here is actually evil. And there was a previous generation of Israelites who were described as evil and as wicked. Deuteronomy 1.35, not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to their fathers. They acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation in Deuteronomy 32.5. This is the Exodus generation who came out of Exodus seeing the great miracles of God, having experienced salvation at the hand of God. And in turn, became grumblers and complainers and antagonists of God. David writes of this wicked generation in Psalm 95, saying, Do not harden your hearts at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed, I hated that generation, and said they are a people who sin in their heart and they do not know my ways. Jesus' use of testing and of evil here condemns the religious leaders and their followers. They are just like the unbelieving generation of the Exodus who tested God, who grumbled, and who complained. He perceives their hearts. He knows their intents. Well, Jesus doesn't wait for an answer. His question is rhetorical. Seizing upon the opportunity to turn the tables, Jesus engages, and he does so in a very clever way. Remember, this is a theological, not a legal question. He asks for a coin, specifically that which is used for the poll tax. Well, the followers of the Pharisees quickly produce a denarius and hand it to him. And while there's several different types of taxes levied against the Jews, you have the temple tax that the Jewish leaders imposed, then you had the various Roman taxes, sales of land, sales of good, you name it. You had the poll tax, or the head tax. This was a tax on every adult Jew. Male, female, servant, didn't matter. It was, as one commentator noted, a potent symbol of their political subjection. The poll tax was so hated by the Jews that a zealot named Judas the Galilean had led a revolt against this specific tax in A.D. 6, just a couple decades earlier. It didn't end well for him and had angered the Romans even further. So this poll tax really was the perfect catalyst to get Jesus to say something that would get him in trouble with either the Romans or the Jews. But Jesus uses it to his own advantage. He holds the coin up in verse 20. And he asks, whose image, whose likeness is on this coin? And they respond, Caesar's, the Roman emperor's. Jesus replies simply, then return it to him. If it belongs to the emperor, give it back to him. Jesus brushes aside the issue of paying the tax, makes light of it, almost as if he's saying the tax is due 
payment for the benefits received from the Roman government, so give them their money back. But then he tacks on a profound and a deeply theological statement with the words, and to God the things that are God's. Eight words in English, only six in the Greek. And yet in this concise statement stands a treasure trove of theology. These words bring together our human and divine citizenship. They provide the basis for how we live as citizens on earth while being citizens of the kingdom of God. But how do we unpack this? How do we unpack these eight words? Well, we have some help. The same spirit that moved Matthew, Mark, and Luke to write their gospels also moved Paul to write a commentary on this instruction. And he did that, and you can find it in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And you're welcome to turn there. And to see that it is, in fact, an inspired commentary on this passage, and I'm not making that up. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 13. We'll start there, and then I'll jump back to the first five. Notice what he says and how similar it is. For because of this, and we'll get to the, what the because of this is in a moment, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Fascinating, isn't it? Wicked, evil, disobedient rulers are servants of God. That is, they are instruments of God that he has established on this earth. If you spend much time in the Old Testament, you realize this is not a new concept. Daniel said in Daniel 2, verse 20, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings, he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. There's a number of other places you could go to see how God establishes and puts in place rulers and authorities. When sending the people of Israel back into the land of Judah after the Babylonian exile, Cyrus, the king of Persia, is the one whom the Lord uses. And you know, Cyrus himself even recognized that he was a servant of God, and he was not a godly man. But he recognized he was being used by God. God even calls him his servant. It's because God had placed him there for that purpose. And we're to pay taxes and show honor and respect to the rulers God has established over us, whether it's by means of a dictatorship or a democracy. Now, jump back to the first five verses of Romans 13. And I wish we could spend more time here this morning. It's a good place maybe to come back sometime soon. But just listen to these verses, and I'll, I'll provide very brief commentary. Verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And you notice what it doesn't say. It left out, in subjection to the governing authorities who do the will of God all the time and love me. That's not in there. For there is no authority. That means all authorities come from God. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance, the plan of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. It's a fancy word for punishment. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? 
Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for your good. It, the authority, every single authority God has established, good or evil, is a minister of God to you for your good, so that you, so that, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake, that is, to have a good conscience, a clear conscience before God. What should be immediate, clear, and obvious from a simple reading of the text is that our obedience to rulers has very few limitations, very few qualifications, whether it is taxes or anything else. Taxes is just a great launching point because, as we've already noted, everybody has an opinion about that. Not only that, our obedience to rulers and authority is obedience to God. In that statement, Jesus brings together heaven and earth, and that our Activity, our actions, our obedience to the governing authorities is a pattern and a way of establishing how are we going to be toward God. In other words, you're going to practice obeying them so that you can obey me because I've put them in place. And to disobey them is to disobey God. And considering what it means to render to God the things that are God, consider that Leading up to Paul's commentary on Jesus' words here in Romans 13, Paul noted what our service to God looks like, what we should render to God, what is the logical, the reasonable response that we should have with our lives, and it's found in Romans 12. If you want to take a left in your Bibles a couple pages, you'll find that. Romans 12, verse 1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and is acceptable and perfect. In other words, our entire lives, our existence belong to God, and as such, we owe him everything. Interesting, interestingly, we are made in the what? We were created, Genesis 2, we were created in the image of God. What was it that was on the back of that coin? The image of Caesar. It was the image of Caesar on the coin that meant the money goes back to Caesar. It is the image of God on our lives that means our lives are devoted back to God. What should be clear is that there is no contradiction between worship of God. Remember, it was a theological question. There is no contradiction between the worship of God and obedience to governing authorities including the paying of taxes, however wickedly those taxes may be used. If the governing authorities ever command clear obedience to God, then of course, as Peter and the apostles note in Acts 4, 19 and 5, 29, we must obey God rather than men. But, but, in doing that, we do it in a way that protects and enhances our testimony of the gospel. We must guard our attitudes so that we do not unnecessarily antagonize and aggravate those who are the mission field. Make it so that if they ever have any complaint, it's against the gospel, not against you. 
Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Submit yourself, therefore, to the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Again, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say to every good human institution, every godly human institution. Whether to a king as the one of authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Well, going back to Matthew, while the full impact of Jesus' words may not have been recognized by the disciples, the followers of the religious leaders, they understood enough. They are astounded, verse 22. They were likely astounded that Jesus had so easily and simply routed the great wisdom of the religious establishment, but I believe they were equally as amazed by the response itself and its implications. When studying a text like this, it would seem that we have an important question to answer. How am I doing paying my taxes? By that, I don't just mean the money that we owe. Any more than Jesus just meant give money back to Caesar. But the honor and the respect that is due to the governing authorities as a way of showing that I honor and respect God. The reason I owe it is because God established the rulers and the authorities. And to rebel, to mock, to dishonor them is to dishonor God. Do you take it seriously? There's a Christian news source that I enjoy reading because they do a good job weeding out a lot of the bias that we often find in the media. But I continue to be disturbed and bothered by the tenor of the way they speak about our leaders. the lack of respect and the lack of honor they show them. They, they have no fear of God in how they mock and how they dishonor and how they rejoice over the failings of our leaders. And that's just wrong. There's no other way to describe it. I feel that same sadness, that same disturbance over the great evil that's perpetuated by those in leadership, whether it's in our country or across the world. But what does Jesus teach is the right response? Honor, prayer, respect. That's how we make a difference in the kingdom of God. Not by mocking them, not by rejoicing over their failings. As the Israelites were instructed while being subjugated to idolatrous, evil, ungodly Babylonian rule, do you remember what they were commanded to do? Seek the good, the peace, the prosperity of that location. It's a model for us. It's a reminder for us because we are sojourners. We are aliens. We are foreigners in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, so we're strangers here. So while we are here, during our temporary time on this earth, seek the peace and the prosperity of the place God has put you. Be the best possible citizen you can in your community, your state, in your nation. Why? Because through our God-honoring behavior, we will silence the ignorance of foolish and unbelieving persons. And our obedient, gentle, gracious, and loving response to evil and unjust rulers glorifies God in the day of visitation. And that's the point. 
That's the reason for paying taxes. We're doing anything on this earth. It's to better prepare ourselves to be citizens of God's eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning. The reminder of how much you've put before us to do to prepare ourselves to be your citizens. The number of different ways in which we can show our love for you through very practical, tangible means in this world. Father, it doesn't make it easy. Our hearts turn over with the wickedness that we observe. We're agitated, we're disturbed, we're troubled at a world that hates you, that hates your word, that rejoices in wickedness, that rejoices in evil, that celebrates it, that promotes it, that exalts it. Father, we confess that it is hard to respond rightly. It is hard to think rightly. It is hard not to become angry. It is hard not to want to take vengeance into our own hands. Father, help us to remember that vengeance is yours, that we need to stay in our lane and do what you have instructed us to do, which is to live a peaceable and quiet life, to be good citizens, to proclaim the gospel, to honor you, Help us to remember to pray faithfully and diligently for the leaders you've put over us. Help us to honor them in our speech. And Father, would we see revival? Would we see your word proclaimed? Would we see the turning of our leaders, whether it be at the local level or the national level or across this world, would we see hearts turn toward you? We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing together.